Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you're out there having a great holiday season. And thanks for tuning back in because on this week's show, I am very excited to have Randy Olson, data visualization, machine learning, uh, expert tweeter extraordinaire. Uh, Randy, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Um, how is your uh, holiday season starting off? Going pretty well. Just taking it easy this week, you know. Um, it's really, really cold here in Philadelphia. So, uh, yeah, sorry if I get the shivers while I'm talking. It's even cold in this room. <laughs> Finally getting a taste of winter. But, uh, and soon we'll be complaining about, uh, you know, it's too cold and then we'll be complaining it's too hot. And so that's, you know, that's just the way it is, I guess. The circle of life. The circle of life. That's right. Um, we've got a few big things I want to dig into because you have a really cool project on national parks and then you do a lot of interesting research on machine learning. And I want to talk about both of those. Uh, but before I dive into to some specific questions, can you maybe uh, introduce yourself for folks and give a little bit of your background? Yeah, sure. I can give a, a, a brief uh, synopsis, I guess, of who I am. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, data viz and machine learning guru is a good way to explain myself. Tweet, tweeter extraordinaire. Sure. <laughs> You'll take it, right? Yeah, I've started running out of time for that lately, but I still try to keep on top of it. Um, but yeah, so basically, I, um, formally, I'm a senior data scientist at the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Biomedical Informatics. Um, and that's basically a fancy title for a really cool job that I have here, um, where I basically get to spend all of my time uh, developing machine learning software, and developing machine learning methods and applying them to biomedical data at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, so I'm basically just, you know, geeking out 24-7 or close to it um, over data and machine learning and data viz, you know, all, all the stuff I ever dreamed of um, when I was in grad school, which, by the way, leads. Uh, I was a Ph.D. student at Michigan State University. Uh, I will still say go green, even though this has been a really terrible season for us in football. <laughs> I'm still a proud Spartan. Um, yeah, I studied computer science there, studied computer science in undergrad. Um, so basically a decade straight of computer science education building up to the ultimate nerdy job now. Nice. Um, yeah, also on the side, um, when I was in grad school, I started a hobby um, of blogging about data and data visualization and eventually machine learning. And that led to, I presume, some of the projects we'll talk about here. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and I'm also interested in talking about how... Um, your work uh, in the in the computer science lab overlaps with the health providers, I guess, as it were, at the rest of the university. But um, before we dive into that, I want to talk about uh, one of your latest projects, I guess, would be your optimal road trip to the U.S. National Parks project, which was super fun. And uh, I've been exploring it to see how I can take the kids on a fun National Parks tour uh, the fastest way possible. Um, because I'm not sure how many hours in the car I can handle with both kids. But um, <laughs> do you want, you want to talk a little bit about that and, and what was the inspiration and how you developed it? Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, you know, uh, I mean, it's the, the centennial for the National Park Service. And so, um, you know, I wanted to do something to help celebrate that, um, to help encourage people to, uh, you know, get out there and even visit, you know, even just a few of the parks and, and see, you know, the, the really – beautiful uh, parks that, that we've organized over the years. Um, and so uh, somebody gave me this idea, you know, I've, I've become a little bit um, famous or infamous or whatever you want to call it for, you know, designing these, these optimal road trips that can hit a whole bunch of locations in the fastest time possible. 
And someone suggested, oh, why don't you try to do that for all the national parks? Um, so that's basically what this trip is, you know, as it tries to hit every single national park in the U.S. Uh, as quickly as possible, uh, with meaning as little as little driving as possible. And it ends up being this epic, you know, multi-day trip that I think would at least take you a couple months to finish. But, wow, it would be an amazing trip. I wish I had the time to go on it. Yeah. And and how did you develop the the algorithm to I guess minimize the driving time and maximize the adventure? Yeah, um, so that started. Gosh, has it been almost two years now? Hmm. Wow, time flies. Uh, it has a bit of a funny beginning because I, I originally developed that algorithm um, when I was writing up my dissertation for my PhD. And as with all PhD students, I was looking for a distraction from writing my dissertation. And so uh, one weekend when it was really snowy in Michigan, which tends to happen a lot during the winter, I was snowed in for the weekend. My weekend plans were canceled. So I turned to what else but my you know data hobby, my data blogging hobby. Um, and I found this really cool article on, on Slate.com. Uh, that talked about finding Waldo from the uh, Where's Waldo children's books mm -hmm. um, as quickly as possible using math. Um, and they came up with a pretty good technique for, for doing that, and I was pretty impressed. But at the same time, I had been studying and applying machine learning for several years at that point, and I said, you know what? I bet I can reach into my bag of machine learning tricks and do better than that. Um, so that's exactly what I did that weekend. I, I basically, I treated finding Waldo as a traveling salesman problem mm -hmm. uh, and tried to sort of optimize that path on finding him as quickly as possible. And so using this uh, machine learning algorithm, I was able to do that and effectively solve Waldo. I was able to discover a path across the Where's Waldo pages. If I remember right, it was, it was an, an average of 10 seconds or so. Um, so, that, so that was a pretty cool result because, I mean, you know, I basically solved an age-old problem that at least I grew up with of finding Waldo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he always, you know, he, he always hid from me. Um, and now, you know, when I have kids, I can impress them and be like, look at how cool dad is. He can find <laughs> Waldo in like 10 seconds. You know, dad is amazing. Right. He's super dad. Right. Uh, and so I shared that as a blog post. And then I, I was contacted by uh, a reporter at Discovery News, Tracy Setter, the next weekend. And she said, you know, hey, this is this problem that you're solving here, this traveling salesman problem where you're trying to hit, you know, every point on the page as quickly as possible. This is very similar to what we do when we design road trips, right? I mean, when some yeah. of us design road trips, you know, we... We choose where we want to go, and then we, unless we really, really love driving, we try to find the shortest path possible um, to get to all those places. And so I said, yeah, that sounds, you know, exactly like the same kind of problem. Um, and so I spent the next weekend, even though it wasn't snowed in that weekend, <laughs> spent that next weekend working on that. Um, and I came up with this algorithm to uh, optimize road trips using Google Maps directions. Right. What I love about the post is your walkthrough and, and, and the image, of course, the Google Maps image. But the comments are probably the best part. Um, people debating uh, which parks are worth including or excluding, how much it would cost to do all the parks. Now, how many of these parks have you actually visited? 
unfortunately, I've only visited a few myself. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I keep designing these road trips, these yeah. epic road trips, and, and being like, I'm going to do it one day. I'm going to do right. it one day. But it, it, it is very difficult to get. You know, most of these road trips require at least a couple months to do them in full. Um, and so uh, part a, a follow-up post to that original one actually focused on, you know, how can you optimize um, – you know, subsets of these trips, you know, like let's say you have 48 hours, you have a weekend, you know, and you want to um, do a bit, the biggest road trip possible out of that. You can do that as well. Right. Yeah. So I, I haven't got to do much traveling myself, but there have been, um, I've, I've already been contacted by a couple people who have done at least a large portion of, of this national parks road trip. Um, not the original road trip that was hitting a major landmark in every state. Mm hmm. At least a dozen people have done that now. It's really amazing. You know, people see these these maps, these trips on the Internet, and they say, I'm going to do that. Right. Those, those people are really inspiring to me. <laughs> now, what would, what would it take for you to modify this to do, say, the optimal road trip for, um, you know, you've seen these a lot of, like, optimal road trip for uh, going to every baseball stadium, uh, you know, during the season or every football stadium. How, how would you think about doing that when you're adding an element where you can only be in Seattle – or in San Francisco at a particular time. Right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very, very similar problem, except basically adding time constraints. Yeah. Right. Um, so um, there's actually funny enough, another article on slate that does exactly that. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, using a different method, but they're, they're able to find, you know, like an op- optimized road trip under these time constraints as well. But it's certainly possible. I mean, uh, all these algorithms in some sense are trying to optimize some criteria. You know, for right. my algorithm, it's it's minimizing the number of miles that you drive. Uh, and you can sort of make that a multi-objective problem where you say, you know, um, minimize the number of miles that we drive, but also take the, these time constraints into account as well. You know, we can't go back in time to go to a game that happened last week or something. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, that, that's, a, that's a big, big field of research, but it certainly complicates the problem because you can't just, you know, visit any place at any time of the year anymore. Right. Um, so let's turn to, to some more of your full-time research, not just the fun stuff, although I guess it sounds like your full-time research is the fun stuff as well. Um, <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the machine learning types of, of work that you do? And, and you had mentioned that it's uh, biomedical stuff. So how much does it overlap or how much do you interact with, I should say, with the folks who are um, actually in the Penn Hospital and using some of the tools and techniques that you are developing? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so basically the you know the road trip stuff was one kind of machine learning algorithm, an optimization algorithm that I like to use. Um, in my day to day work, I use more standard statistical machine learning methods. Um, you know, folks who, who are familiar with machine learning, uh, things like random forests or logistic regression, um, all that fun stuff. Um, yeah, so the the work that I do, um, I, I actually work a fair bit with um, with Penn physicians. We actually, as a part of this institute that I'm a part of, we have this whole room um, called the Idea Factory. Uh, and basically, the the whole point of this room is for Penn physicians, Penn researchers to come in um, with their data sets or with issues, and we have a whole bunch of data scientists, including myself, there um, to bring that technical expertise to their research. Um, you know, so they they obviously have 
way, way more experience than us than working with, you know, the actual patients and working with the data. But in terms of actually applying machine learning to it, uh, uh, that's where we come in. We, we, you know, help them design the experiments, how to properly sample the data, doing the, the initial exploratory data analysis, um, doing some basic modeling, all that stuff. Um, so, so we work, you know, quite, quite a bit with, with the pen data um, but as far as collecting the data, I, I have to say, for me at least, thankfully, I don't have to work much with the patients or anything. <laughs> um, there's definitely a big focus on on actually building tools that are actually useful for the hospital. You know, bu- building a model that can predict the need for beds in the emergency room, for example. Um, you know, a, a lot of the things, not just at Penn, but at, at hospital systems all around the country. Are they sort they sort of just use rules of thumb or heuristics, you know, about guessing, um, you know, when a patient needs extra care or you know when we have to adjust something about the hospital. So now we're trying to use machine learning to trying to use a data driven approach um, to improve those decision making processes. So it's it's pretty cool because um, my PhD research focused on a lot of theoretical stuff, um, but now I actually get to build and uh, build yeah. machine applications that have you know direct uses. Um, to for the Penn Hospital and also improving people's health care at Penn. So it's it's been a really nice position so yeah. far. Yeah, very applied. So are you pulling in then real-time data? Um, you have a patient uh, who's in the ER and you're trying to predict, you know, something health-wise, you know, moving up to the ICU, moving out of the hospital. So are you pulling in real-time biometric data and running that through an algorithm and, and constantly updating it? I know. So, so far, we have not been working on, on real-time stuff in our institute. However, there is um, a, a really, really good data science team um, working directly within the hospital as well, um, who, who they are doing that. They've mm-hmm. built this, this Penn Signals application that they're integrating directly into the hospital system um, that, uh, that processes information in real time, makes uh, predictions about the patient's health, um, and, and also, you know, just even just does basic things like providing, you know, uh, the number of tests that a patient has had and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. The history, you know, things that normally is just a stack of paper that the physician has to look through. Now they have a nice computer interface for that. Um, but as, as far as our work, most of the time we gather the data ahead of time. Um, and even we design an experiment and gather the data in a specific way. And then we start modeling around that, you know, so we try to you know, account for, for things like diseases tend to be, most diseases tend to be fairly rare in the population. So we have to, you know, account for class imbalances in the data and things like that. So, uh, yeah, we, we usually don't work with real-time data, at least not yet, but that doesn't mean we won't in the near future. Right. You know, one of the things we've seen recently with the election and the um, discussion after the election, with at least with regards to polling, is this... Um, idea of uncertainty and how we convey uncertainty and how and whether people understand uncertainty. Do you find that that is an issue you need to um, tackle when you are trying to build these algorithms and communicate patient information to doctors where there's an X percent chance that this patient could or need could do this or need this, and yet there's uncertainty around that? Well, I mean, so as far as communicating that information to the physicians, thankfully, that's really easy. That's sort of a world that they, they live in, it seems, mm. um, which has been a, a, a relief. Um, you know, they, <laughs> yeah. they, I mean, it's very standard terminology to say that someone is is at risk or not at right. risk. 
that you know it's 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 implied that there's a probability there. Just because you're at risk doesn't mean you're going to develop this disease, right? Yeah. Um, and, then, and then there's a gray area there where you know you can have certain levels of being at risk and so on and so forth. Um, so as far as communicating that information to the physicians and researchers, been pretty easy. Yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, communicating that to the general populace is much, much harder. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, one of the things that I that I tweeted about the election is, you know, um, gosh, what what were the probabilities of of Trump winning the the day prior to the election? Like thirty percent. Uh, yeah, something like yeah, I think it was like uh, fifteen, twenty percent, or something like that, according to the upshot, I believe. Yeah, so I mean, that, yeah, there were there were numbers all over the place, but all of them were fairly low. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, you know, my tweet was pointing out that you know just because it says fifteen percent, twenty percent, it doesn't mean it's impossible, right? right? <laughs> you know, it's it's not out out of the window. Nope. Um, and so we had a firsthand lesson during the election there that rare events can happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's still, um, it's still a tremendous challenge um, communicating the concept of, of probability. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to, to the general population. I mean, I, I won't, I won't like, you know, sit on a high horse here and pretend that I don't fall susceptible to it too. You know, it's, it's, it takes a certain mindset to think probabilistically. Um, to think, you know, when that when so, when someone says you're at risk of some disease, you're you're not doomed. <laughs> you're no, just, right. Um, and personally, I've I've still fallen, you know, uh, prey to that. I, well, I mean, every day when we look at the the weather forecast, if I see 10% chance of rain, 20% chance of rain, I say, yeah, it's not going to rain, and then I get pissed off when when it does rain and I didn't bring my umbrella. Um, you know, so we, we, we live in a probabilistic world. And so it's uh, takes practice to think. Yeah, probabilistically. yeah absolutely. Um, are you also thinking about hardware when you're developing the algorithms or is that someone else's job? So I'm thinking of uh, in the healthcare field, there's obviously been a lot of change in the in the software and the technology they're using. But they're also moving, I would uh, guess, in my fortunate brief interactions with with the healthcare field that, you know, moving from. Uh, stationary desktop to computers to laptops to to mobile um, tablet devices. So, are you thinking about how uh, people would use your um, your dashboards or your visualizations in in those sorts of different platforms? Oh yeah. Um, so a, a couple things to say there. So um, yeah, absolutely. We're considering um, hardware because I mean we can't always expect people to have, you know, really powerful machines right there when they're dealing with the patients, you know, sometimes they're just using tablets or whatever else. So um, in this idea factory, we focus largely on, on web-based interfaces um, that people can log into and interact with and, you know, make it very, very swipey and very interacty and <laughs> all yeah. that good stuff. Um, so absolutely. That's, that's been a major consideration. Um, and another thing is is um, that's been particularly exciting here is that we um, have a large fund for building an actual computing center behind this whole uh, this whole visualization room. Um, and so, what, one of the greatest things that we've had is the the ability to build an AI behind everything that's going on here. So, sort of an AI assistant, uh, almost on the level of uh, well, I, I, if you've seen the movie Idiocracy, you know they have. Um, the sort of AI doctor, you know, you plug in something to like your mouth and something in your butt, and then it gives you, you know, it tells you. <laughs> it's not on that level, but you know, that that's, that's, I won't say that's what we're building towards, but think yeah. of something like that, right? right, right. We're going to have an AI assistant that 
Um, when people bring in their data sets or whatever else, it can help them along the way, you know, applying the right machine learning methods or, or whatever else. Right. Um, and so um, in addition to considering the fact that, you know, people are going to be using our, our tools on a tablet, you know, or, or a phone, which, you know, has decent computing power, but not the computing power that we need for machine learning. We're also dealing with the fact that we, we do have algorithms that can use a lot of computing power, and we, we have that as well on the back end. So it's, it's quite nice building, you know, a very lightweight front end that works on all kinds of hardware, mm-hmm. uh, but also connects into a much more powerful computing system in the back end. Right. Um, really interesting. Before we, before we finish up, I wanted to ask you where you think uh, machine learning and the sort of work that you're doing is going to be in the next year or five years. Mm. Um, yeah, sure. So I mean, one thing that's actually directly relevant to my research, I think, um, is there's been this, this huge growth in this idea of automated machine learning. Um, and so basically, automated machine learning is this idea that machine learning is, is quite powerful, right? And then it allows computers and machines to learn uh, from data um, and, and make predictions from that data. But it's actually still pretty laborious to actually design those machine learning algorithms, to code them up, to select the right parameters, to process the data in the right way. Um, So we've put a tremendous effort in our institute here into this idea of automated machine learning, where we have sort of a a meta algorithm on top of this entire machine learning and almost the full data science workflow um, to automate that entire process of processing the data all the way to modeling it and, and delivering that final model hmm. uh, to production. Um, so I think there's going to be a tremendous focus, especially coming up over the next couple of years, improving upon these automated machine learning algorithms because they're going to relieve um, machine learning researchers and machine learning practitioners from the sort of boring process of doing the really basic stuff of selecting the right model, optimizing its parameters, yada, 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 mm-hmm. and freeing them to work on the really the harder problem of, of machine learning, which is thinking in the right terms. You know, how do we pose this as a, as a data problem? How do we pose this as, as a machine learning problem? And how do we do it in a way that it's actually useful for my company or for my institute or, or whatever else? Um, so I think that's going to be a tremendous focus. And, and we've already seen, even just this year, um, some really nice progress in this field uh, where we have these automated machine learning systems actually beating um, hundreds of, of machine learning experts on, let's say, Kaggle problems or other machine learning competition problems. So it's really, really promising, really, really exciting. Um, and so, you know, just Google up automated machine learning if you want to learn more about that, I suppose. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. And um, it sounds exciting. I mean, it sounds exciting for what we're we'll able to see over the next few years. So that's, that's great. Um, Randy, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it's been great chatting with you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you want to take your optimal road trip to the U.S. National Parks, you should go check out Randy's site at randallolson.com, and I'll put a link to that post and the rest of his website on the uh, show notes. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.